Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Pillar Church of Oceanside. Yes, indeed. It's a beautiful day, as Mike said already. It's a beautiful day because we thought it was going to rain, and by God's grace, it didn't. thought it was going to be freezing, and by God's grace, it's not. And by all accounts of anybody uh, east of California, it's not even close to freezing. It's also a beautiful day because it is the love of my life's birthday. So, happy birthday to her. And it's a beautiful day because we get to continue in our study of First John. I'm sorry, John. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to do a little bit of follow-up. I know last week we were talking about the significance and the importance of, of being moved to action and um, kind of put before the church the opportunity that exists that we have to, to share the Word of God, to expose people to God's teaching through stories and through learning stories in the Bible. So I was just curious if anybody had actually committed a, a story to memory this week. Anybody have the opportunity to do that? I see one hand. Okay, cool. Not cool, but, you know, it's cool. Hey, listen, uh, I fully understand that what we're talking about here and what we've been discussing is a challenge for every Christian. If it wasn't a challenge for every Christian, we wouldn't be having these ongoing conversations, and we wouldn't see the massive grip that the church has lost in society and we have lost our voice because the church, by and large, is not doing what we've been called to do. So I, I get it. This is difficult. It's challenging. It's uncomfortable for most people. But I also know that none of those are a reason for us not to do it. Amen? Okay, so I see where we're going already this morning. That's cool. It's all good. I promise you that from the elders' perspective... Nothing is going to stop us to continue to push us as a body forward, even the resistance of the church. So we're going to keep doing what we're doing, and, and I pray that you would come along with us, and um, by God's grace you will, and we will see uh, God's kingdom expanding through the work of his people, which is the Great Commission, which we know. Okay, enough. Let's move forward. If you have a Bible with you, or you have a Bible app phone, you can flip over to John chapter 2. When you get a moment, John chapter 2. So we're near the beginning of the New Testament. Mike doesn't like me to be loud. He, he likes me to have to speak really boldly and loudly through my... Every time he gets, I start talking, he turns me down. He's like... <clears throat> just give just give you a hard time. It's all good. It's my loud, booming voice. I get it. Yeah. John chapter 2 is where we're going to be, and I'm going to read for us the first 11 verses. So everybody, is everybody there in John chapter 2? Oh, yes. Sweet. John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who draw the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, they pour the 
than the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first sign of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Well, Father, we just pause this morning and say thank you again for allowing us to gather freely. And Lord, we, we just want to honor you in all that we do to include how we come to your word faithfully and consistently each week on a Sunday morning, Lord, and how we continue in that pattern throughout our lives to allow the word of God to shape us, Lord, to not to be conformed to this world as easy and as tempting as that is, Lord. We want to be conformed and shaped by your word uh, to include this morning. So I pray, God, that you would speak through me with clarity and with boldness, God, and keep error from my lips, Lord God, and let me speak only truth with boldness and give us hearts to hear and ears to listen. Lord, we pray for your grace and your favor in these things we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so what do we have here in this section of, of Scripture in, in John chapter 2? We have the first of, of a couple of signs that we're going to see in the Gospel of John. Anybody remember from a few weeks back how many signs there are in the Gospel of John? Seven. Seven, that is correct. There are seven signs or miracles that are performed by uh, by Jesus that John records. And a few important things are happening as this uh, story unfolds. But uh, let me just give you a little bit of background information of what's happening. Because weddings back then are not like weddings now. There's some things culturally that, that wouldn't make sense. So let me just give you a little bit of background here so we can have the big picture. First, take notice of the day that met, is mentioned. What what day does it say it is? In, in the third day, right? The third day from what? Uh, third day from when? It's the third day from the previous event. So jump back to John 1.43. Just flip over your page or just look. John 1.43, what does it say? It says the next day in the ESV and some other translations. That's 1.43. Now look back to 1.35. What does it say? The next day. Look at 1.1. What does it say? Sorry, I didn't go that far. Wait, hold on. Jump back real far. Mark. Go, go really far back. Where did I go? One twenty-nine. There you go. The next day. Yeah. So what do we have? We've got a time frame being established. And we're not really told why or what is happening here. And depending on how you count the events that are taking place, this wedding, what we have here now, is either on the sixth day or the seventh day. What does the number seven mean in, or what does it represent in the Bible? Anybody know? It's the number of completion or perfection. Completion is what we're talking about here. Um, so it could be bringing into fact that one stage of, of Jesus' ministry or life is coming to an end. It's coming clo close, and now we have the beginning of a new season of his life, a new stage that is beginning his public ministry with his first sign. But we have to be careful not to read too much into what is not very explicitly laid out for us. You know, we don't want to just lay our ideals and our things on top of scripture, but we do want to try to be sensitive to what is saying here. Nevertheless, we are only a few days into the narrative and a few days into what we see as Jesus's public ministry beginning. So, that's, that's one thing to note. Also, don't let it be lost on you that Jesus is at a wedding with his mother and his disciples. So Jesus is not hesitant to be in and around other people. Sometimes Jesus is 
wrongly portrayed as this sort of pious and distant figure who's kind of over here with his people, or he's just kind of unrelatable. And that couldn't be further from the truth, right? Jesus was in and among the people that he was trying to reach, wasn't he? Always. We should make every effort to do what he does and be among the people that we're trying to reach. And, and I'll be honest with you, that's one of the reasons that I recently took on a part-time job. I felt compelled to put myself in a position to surround myself with a circle that was primarily made up of unbelievers. And here's why. Because we're called to be ambassadors for Christ. You know that, right? We've talked about that a lot. It's very tough to be an effective and functioning ambassador when there's nobody around you or very few people around you. And the ones that are around you are from your country. Right? You're not being an ambassador for people that already know and buy into what it is that you represent as an ambassador. In other words, if your circle only consists of other Christians, how do you intend to carry out the Great Commission? We can't. So we follow Jesus' example. We are in and among the people. Amen? Okay, back to the wedding. So whose wedding is this? We don't know. Good. I like it. See, you're being smart. You're looking at the text and you're asking questions like, what is Jesus doing there? How do we know who this is? We don't know. But we also don't know is that Jesus' mother is somehow involved. Why is she involved? We don't know. Perhaps it's a, a family friend or a, 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 a relative of some part. And even though we don't know the details of that, we know that somehow Mary, the mother of Jesus, is somehow in the loop of what's going on because she's made aware that there is no more wine. They've run out of wine. So again, one of these contextual things that may help us understand things. Now, a wedding here in, in the West um, it's a couple hours event. Even though you spend months and months and months and months planning for it, the, the, the wedding day itself only lasts a couple of hours. In this context, in this culture, weddings would often last up to a week in time. Imagine being the, the father of the bride in that context. <clears throat> because it would be on the bride's family to provide everything for everybody for that duration, and it would be incredibly embarrassing in this sort of shame culture. If you ran out of something, it would be a really bad thing. It would be a very, very big deal. So Mary, having some concern of the fact that they've run out of wine, approaches Jesus for help. Now, it doesn't seem that, that she's expecting him to perform a miracle of any kind because he hasn't done that yet. So it seems very, very apparent at this point that Joseph is no longer in the picture. He's not alive. He's not mentioned anywhere in the narrative past when Jesus was a, a child. So it seems that Jesus then is taken over as the provider for his family. So with Joseph, his carpenter father, out of the picture, Jesus would have been responsible for caring for, providing for, earning a living for his family. This is why Mary went to Jesus with the problem, because in her household, when there was a need to be met or a problem to be solved, he was the one that she went to, and so she does so here as well. And then in verse 4, we read of Jesus' very, very interesting response to Mary, right? This is what he says. Woman, what, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Interesting response. Two things are happening in this moment that we need to grab hold of. First thing is that Jesus is making a separation from his mother, now, is, does that language seem a little bit rude to you? Like, woman, who do you think you are? That kind of thing, right? That's not at all <laughs> the, the context here. This is not a, a rude, sort of harsh language. 
Um, it's a very stark moment, though, and Jesus communicates that he's no longer dependent on any human being, not even his own mother. Not disrespectful, but it's, it's, it, it's him drawing a line in the sand, making it clear that Jesus is operating without the influence of any human authority. Don Carson, one of the theologians that I, that I study often, he says this, but now he entered into the purpose of his coming. This is Jesus, right? Everything, even family ties, had to be subordinated to his divine mission. In other words, everything is taking a back seat. So Mary could no longer view him as other mothers viewed their sons. She must no longer be allowed the prerogatives of motherhood. She, like every other person, must come to him as the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, having known a few mothers over my years, I'd imagine this would have been a difficult moment for Mary, as you can imagine, right? But that's what we see happening here. In that one statement, Jesus is making a separation. That make sense? Also, in Jesus, in chapter 4, or verse 4, rather, I told you there's two things happening. The second thing is that he's introducing the sort of timeline language. What, what sort of timeline language does he initiate here? What does he say? It's about an hour, right? My hour has not yet come. So we're going to see this throughout all of John. This is really the first time that he says this. Um, and he's, he's kind of giving us uh, some chronology here, something that is going to be coming soon. The term hour in John here is really just a technical term that's used generally to refer to, anybody know what it refers to? What's coming that Jesus is coming for? Not quite the resurrection. Yeah, yeah, it's the death. His hour, it, of course, that is dovetailed by the resurrection. Yes, that's correct. But we're talking about his death. So this hour that Jesus talks about is his coming death on the cross. And we're going to see it referenced at least 15 more times in John. But the meaning of the term remains the same, but the connotation shifts after chapter 12. You remember when we were back in the very beginning, kind of going through how this thing was set up? We have a, a prologue and an epilogue, a beginning and an ending. And then we've got how many sections of the rest of the chapters? Two main sections, right? We have chapters 2 through 12, which is basically Jesus' earthly ministry. And then we have 13 through 30, which is his passion week, the last week of his life. So this divide happens with the way this term is used. So up to chapter 12, verse 30, the meaning of the hour is that it's future. It's out there. We don't really know exactly what's happening, but it's, it's coming sometime, but way down in the future. That's the context that's used. And then after the hour, after chapter 12, it means that it's eminent. The hour is about to happen. So the context changes a little bit. So in speaking about this hour to come, he's basically revealing, hey, listen up, guys. Something major is going to happen in the future. And the more that we see the, the narrative unfold, the more that things begin to happen, the clearer it becomes to his disciples what that is. So as you can see, in this just, just this one statement from Jesus, two very important things take place. And then after all this, what does Mary do? Tells them, the servants, hey, just do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Whatever it is, simply because she knows Jesus as a problem solver. And I don't think she had any idea of what was about to take place. And what's about to take place? That first miracle, right? So the climax moment of this passage is the miracle itself. Now, I think it's pretty cool. 
that Jesus turns water into wine. Anybody else think that's cool? It's, it's awesome, right? As cool as it is, the physical act of water to wine is made all the more significant and amazing when you see what he is actually doing on a spiritual level. And so I've saved the sort of overarching theme of the passage this morning until now, so that maybe you weren't distracted up to this point looking for the theme and going, what are you talking about? So let me, let me give you the, the, the theme sort of, of what we're talking about here this morning. And that's this, outward purification, outward purification, doing things to the outside of our body will do nothing to cleanse you of sin. Outward purification will do nothing to cleanse you of sin. Now, you may be saying to yourself after we read that, where exactly are you getting that from? <laughs> How does that work out? And I understand your, 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 your bewilderment, your puzzlement. Which is why I waited until now to drop this on you so you weren't talking and thinking and not paying attention. In verse 6, here we see the beginning of the miracles being set in motion. And some uh, items are being identified. So look down at verse 6 and what are the items that we see identified? Water pots and stone. stone jars. We got some water pots, stone, stone jars, depending on your translations. Right, so we have six of them, do we not? And they hold lots of water, 20 to 30 gallons. They're made of stone, and they're for the purpose of purification. This is what the Jews would have used to purify everything external. So washing your hands, washing utensils, everything that was involved in the wedding process, that's what these jars were used to purify those things. So in Jesus' first sign, he communicates that there is now something far greater that's going to replace these former laws and ceremonial cleansing rituals. Because what does Jesus replace the water with that's in these jars? Wine. And what does wine represent in the New Testament? Blood. The blood of Jesus. Absolutely. And what does the blood of Jesus do to sin? It cleanses. It washes away the sin. Cleanses people. That's right. So you see that there's much more than meeting a need at a wedding party. Jesus is telling us that no outward purification ritual, no matter what it may be, will ever cleanse us from our sin. And people, as we can acknowledge, they try all kinds of things to wash themselves clean and make, them feel, make themselves feel better about their lives, don't they? There are avid attempts of people to detox their soul. Anything from cutting people out of your lives to learning how to meditate, getting in touch with all of your senses, trying to make sure that your good outweighs your bad, and on and on. Now, as I'll often say, there is nothing inherently wrong with these things. But they're not a replacement for the cleansing that we receive from Jesus alone. Right? Yes, you can meditate, you can do all these things. Cutting toxic people out of your life is probably a good thing for some people. But that's not going to cleanse you. That's not going to make you right. He is the only thing that brings true peace, satisfaction, joy, and forgiveness. And it is all available because of what Jesus did on the cross. Right? When he freely gave up his own life, his blood was poured out for you and from you. He paid the necessary price for you and I to receive this cleansing that we're talking about this morning. And so when we see what Jesus did on the cross freely, when we change our minds about God and about ourselves 
recognizing the fact that we have, in fact, offended God, our Creator. We see that we are guilty before God, and we are deserving of punishment. It's here when we can turn from that disobedience and then trust in Jesus for forgiveness. That's the gospel, right? The book of Romans tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every human being that will ever live falls short of the glory of God. There's sin. Romans also tells us that the wages of sin is what? It's death. Spiritual death. That's, that's an eternal separation from God. But Romans, again, tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ, what? He died for us. That's the good news of the gospel. And this is what Jesus' first miracle on earth broadly communicates to us. We're not capable of cleansing ourselves. Only Jesus can do that on our behalf. And just like the Jews here in this story, we need to recognize that the things we have been trying to use for this purpose are not going to bring the cleansing that only comes through Jesus. So as the story continues, there's, there's one more thing for us to take note of. A miraculous event just took place in the middle of this large wedding, and only a handful of people were witness to it. The servants who saw what Jesus were doing knew exactly what was taking place. But the master of the feast had no idea. The bridegroom had no idea. The, the, the wedding party as a whole had no idea what was going on. And this, my friends, has huge implications for us. Let me paraphrase one scholar in looking at this idea. He says, The church's existence in this world is like, one, is like being one of the servants in the wedding who knows who the true hero of the story is, but is surrounded by people who are unaware. The church, seeing the unseen, must now navigate itself as both a witness to God and as a faithful partner awaiting reunion with her bridegroom. The church is Jesus' metaphorical bride being prepared for his return. So the takeaway here for us is an apparent but often neglected truth. Many people are blind to what is happening around them, so we who know the truth must speak up. Now, that's not said in arrogance or pride, as some people would say. Oh, you think yours is the only way, blah, 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 you hear all the excuses, right? It's not arrogance, it's not pride. It's rather simply beggars telling other beggars what? Where the food is, where the, where the, where the, where the bread is. That, that's all that this is. We know something that brings life and hope and healing and forgiveness and eternal life, and we are simply trying to, to tell others where that source is. That's what this looks like. So as we wrap up this morning, we also note that as this sign was performed, Jesus manifested his glory. Now, he made known his amazing and wonderful power and goodness, and the result was people believed. Again, if you go back to the beginning, the first sermon in the series, we went to the end of John to help us to figure out what was the purpose of all this. So if you go to the end of John 20, and you read verses 30 and 31, this is what it said, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. John 20, 31, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's it. Like, that's the reason 
for this gospel account. That we would believe and that we'd be moved to action to tell others that same truth. Now, I don't know what the Lord is revealing to you this morning as we study his word, but I, I pray that you are compelled to action by something that you heard. So what are you going to do about it? I'm not going to give you anything specific this week. I really want you to begin to listen to the Lord and hear from his word what it is that you ought to be doing with this. I really do encourage you to take some action steps and then follow up. You got a life group to follow up with? Maybe you got a fight club to follow up with? Maybe you follow up with your spouse or a friend, a brother in Christ, somebody. There needs to be some level of accountability to what we're doing here. Because if not, my friends, all it is is a really good idea. That's it. It stops there and has no real impact for the kingdom of God. So let's turn this really good idea into action and see what happens. When we walk out in faith, we pray for opportunities to expose people to the word of God. We pray for opportunities to interact with people and lead them to the bread of life. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, I just thank you so much for your faithfulness, your love, your goodness, your word. God, we have hope in you. We have love, forgiveness, all the things that we experience on a regular basis. Oftentimes, Lord, we take for granted or we, we lose sight of as we grow in our Christian faith. We become perhaps comfortable or complacent. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would stir in us an affection for you. Stir up in us a, a, a passion for your word and for the, the people around us that are, that are walking without hope, that are wondering when they lay their head on the pillow at night, what am I here for? Why do I feel this void in my life? Why is there nothing that can fill this need in me? God, we, we have the answer. We have the solution to the world's problem of sin, and it's you. And Lord, we want to be a part of seeing others encounter your word. Because your word tells us that faith comes by hearing. Hearing of the word of God. Just put us in a position, Lord, to be able to, to do that. To be other, lead others in that way, Christ. Let us be found faithful, Lord. That when we stand before you on that faithful day, we can hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, we know that's not just about showing up to church or paying tithes or serving. Lord, that's about being accountable to your great commission. So help us to do that as a family, the believers, as individuals, Lord, and help us to be held to an account. Thank you for the privilege it is to be your ambassador. Lord, give us the strength to do it well. And Lord, we thank you for your grace when we fall short. Because this is challenging. It is difficult, Lord. And we need your help. Thank you for my brothers and sisters here this morning. We're willing to, to hear from you and take steps in that direction, Lord. It is a process, we know. It's not going to happen overnight for, for most. But Lord, we just want to be faithful to take one more step in that direction. Thank you so much for your love, forgiveness, and grace. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.